Well, good morning. Uh, my name's Jenny. I'm the associate pastor here at Bethany Northeast, and I have the privilege of talking about fasting today. That's why that service or that scripture was read. And uh, we are in the midst of a sermon series called, um, I have to look at it now, Sustainable Faith. We're in the sermon series called Sustainable Faith. Last week, we looked at Sabbath keeping and intercessory prayer. We're looking at two spiritual practices each week, which is kind of a big undertaking. This week, we're looking at fasting and service as two spiritual practices that the church collectively uh, is kind of called to, to do. And uh, just a quick note, the other locations of Bethany are actually looking at a different set of spiritual practices this week. We've flip-flopped the topics. So uh, other locations are studying meditation and truth-telling. And next week, they'll pick up this one, fasting and service, and we'll pick up meditation and truth-telling. And uh, it won't affect most of you, but if you end up at a different location next week, you might get a double dose of fasting, just so you know. Um, Part of the reason we wanted to do this, and Jack kind of maybe alluded to this, is typically on fifth Sundays of the month here at Bethany Northeast, we do what we call a Serve Sunday. How many of you have been part of one of those Serve Sundays before? Most of you. Um, And on those days, we would have a really short worship time, and then we'd launch everyone out to serve for about an hour around the community. So picking up trash, making teacher appreciation bags uh, for our local schools, And we've done this pretty faithfully over the course of our life as a church at Bethany Northeast. Well, this Sunday we decided to alter that plan a little. And so you're actually getting a sermon this morning. Normally we cut that on fifth Sundays. Uh, Partly so that we can dig into this set of spiritual practices of fasting and service. And to speak into why we've developed that rhythm. Uh, We are going to aim to end right at 10.30 today and invite all of you, if you're able, to stick around and help us do just a few things to still serve our community. So I'll explain more about that at the end. Uh, But this is more of an abbreviated Serve Sunday, if you will. Before we dive into fasting and service, would you pray with me? God, thank you. We praise you that we get to gather as your church, that we get to worship you this morning, God, thank you for the bodies you've given us. Thank you for the breath in our lungs. And now, God, as we come before your word, as we study what you have to say about this practice of fasting, God, would you open our hearts to a deeper understanding, both of who you are and who you've created us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, from what I've gathered as we've been talking about spiritual practices so far this past few weeks, Fasting is not the favorite one of of all of these topics. Um, And there's not a lot of data out there on how many Christians actually practice fasting today. I looked up, there's a Pew Research study that uh, that went in depth on all kinds of spiritual practices the last uh, few years in the U.S. and who is practicing among Christians um, scripture reading and prayer. Fasting wasn't even one of them, so I want to take a quick poll to see in our congregation uh, who might be practicing this. So show of hands, who in the room has fasted from food intentionally, not by accident, but intentionally, meaning for some spiritual purpose, uh, for any number of meals in 2017 so far? Okay, okay, a few. But um, just so you know, in case you didn't turn around, not many of us raised our hands. A few of us did, and I'm going to be regretting not having you guys uh, come up and talk about it, (laughs) but um, 
To be completely honest, I couldn't have raised my hand until this week either. I don't really like fasting of the spiritual practices. It's also not my favorite. And we talked about the Sabbath last week. And I think almost everyone seemed interested in trying to take time away from working, right? In, t- in trying to practice this gift of the Sabbath. And it's one of the Ten Commandments. We sort of get that one. Taking time away from food, on the other hand, uh, is, I think it's one of God's greatest gifts to mankind, food. That's less appealing to many of us. It sounds less restful, right? We've been calling this a study in spiritual practices. This one feels more like a spiritual discipline than some of the others do. And fasting, uh, I thought about, okay, what was my experience with fasting in my life so far? And my longest experience with fasting was a 30-hour fast. And if you grew up in the church, you might know where I'm going with this. It was way back in high school. My youth leader had us do an all-nighter at the church every year. And then it was associated with this thing you call the 30-hour famine. Yeah, I'm seeing some nodding heads. Basically, church, churches can partner with World Vision and have their students raise money uh, and then fast for 30 hours and give that money they raise to help feed hungry kids around the world. And so usually, we as a youth group would stay up all night and then spend all day the next day doing service projects around the city, and then we'd gather together to break our fast together with pizza and Coca-Cola which is a terrible idea. If you are thinking about breaking your fast after practicing fasting, pizza and Coke is probably not the food. But that's what we did. And, uh, I, you know, I, I was impacted by that. It was, it's still very memorable to me. I was hungry, and I can't imagine how those leaders did it, staying with us hungry and sleep-deprived teenagers for 30 hours. That's beside the point. Uh, I'm realizing two things, though, as I've been studying fasting this week. And first... It's that the 30-hour famine was actually a pretty cool way to introduce um, students to this idea of fasting, right? I think we were able to both simultaneously understand hunger in ways many of us, especially I grew up in kind of an upper-middle-class neighborhood, had never experienced, and then simultaneously think about how do we use money from our community to support kids who are hungry around the world every day. Cool. And then the second thing I've noticed is actually, while there's some problems with the 30-hour famine, it is not a perfect plan, and how it's been executed, like ending it with pizza, and I think calling it a famine, I'm not quite sure, but I think as we'll learn today in our study, the core idea of the 30-hour famine is actually much more in line with the biblical understanding of fasting than I would have guessed, because it's not just about fasting. It's about allowing your fast to show you how you can be more involved in God's story in the world. Having fun with this mic. And I think there's all kinds of questions we have around fasting. Should we as Christians still fast? Is it something we're still supposed to do? I think that's a valid question. When then? When should we fast? How often should we fast? Do I fast from solid foods? Do I fast from liquids? Do I fast from water? How long should I fast? Can you fast from other things than food and drink, like technology? Is that a a legitimate biblical fast? And what should I do while I fast? These are good questions, and I want to sort of say up front, I'm not going to answer all of those today, uh, primarily because many of these questions don't have a straightforward or single answer in Scripture. And that might be why many of us have actually, in the church, given this practice up. It's a little ambiguous. What is a fast? How do we do it? 
But I want us to look today mostly at some of the reasons why. Why is fasting a spiritual practice that's been practiced for thousands of years in the church and beyond and before Christ came? And what purpose does it serve for us today? So that's what we're going to look at. And I think what we'll notice is that the practice of fasting has some baggage, right? It's often resulted in, uh, and we see this in Jesus's time, kind of a self-righteousness, a, a misplaced sense of piety and pride. But actually, true fasting is tied inextricably to humility and to humble acts of service. And if it's done rightly, I think, although it weakens our bodies, it increases our capacity for closeness with God and, for, and with the people around us. So we're going to be studying primarily the passage in Isaiah 58. Uh, and Eric read that for us today, but I'd also love, if you have your Bibles out, you can sort of put a finger in Luke chapter 5. If you've been reading on our reading plan together, we've been reading in Luke um, for the past few weeks, ever since we first started this series. Jack had us grab a bookmark with the Luke reading plan on it. If you don't have it, there's one outside. You can grab it on your way out. We still have like five or six weeks left, but you read uh, about fasting this week if you were reading along. And so I want to kind of reference what we were reading this week together. But we'll start with Isaiah. Isaiah's passage really shows us a lot about fasting. And I think first what we're going to see is what fasting is not in verses 1 through 5. And that's going to help us maybe debunk some myths about fasting that we hold today. And then second, we're going to look at what God does think fasting is. And we'll examine sort of three facets of true fasting. So let's debunk some myths first. To give you a little bit of context about fasting, I'll just touch on the history of Israel. I don't have a lot of time today to go into detail here. But it might surprise you to know that in the whole Jewish calendar, in the whole Jewish year, there was only one mandated fast day. Does anybody know what it is? It's the, it's the Day of Atonement. It's Yom Kippur, which is still practiced today. And that fast day... Uh, was sometimes known as the Sabbath of Sabbaths. It would occur on the Sabbath day. It was designed to last for 25 or so hours because it was from sun, sundown on the Sabbath eve till nightfall on the, on the day of the Sabbath. And during that time, strict observance of that fast meant no eating or drinking, not even water, for 25 hours. And there were sort of designed to be three components of your fast. One was repentance, repenting to God of your sin over the course of that past year. And then second, intensive prayer. And third, giving to the poor. These were sort of the three components of what that fast was supposed to look like. And that fast was for the Day of Atonement, which was for atoning for sin. But now, by the time we get to the Isaiah passage, we learn that the Israelites have started adopting all kinds of additional fasting days. This is why God says in verses 2 and 3, day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways. They seem eager that I should come near them. They're fasting all the time. And the people themselves are actually complaining about it. They're saying, we are fasting, but you're not noticing, God. We're doing all of these things to humble ourselves, and nothing about our circumstances is changing. You're still not answering our prayers. And I think this brings us to our first maybe myth about fasting, which is that it's a means to get God's attention, right? To make sure your prayers are heard, to make sure your prayers are answered. And there are examples in the Bible of people fasting when something really hard faces them 
or when something, when they are praying very seriously about something. So it's not that that's not a, a time for fasting, but we'll get there in a second. In Esther, um, they, Esther asks Mordecai and to get all of the Jews in Susa, the city they're in, to fast for three days and three nights without any food or water in, before she goes before the king to ask the king to spare the Jewish people. In the New Testament, in the book of Acts, the early church would fast and pray before they would choose deacons and elders in the church to lead the church. So there's a place for fasting before something big. That's not what I'm saying. But the subtle distinction here is that fasting is not about making God happier with us, and it's not about getting God's attention. We already have God's attention. And that's sort of what the Israelites are doing. They're trying to add more and more fast days, thinking if we do just one more day of fasting, maybe then God will do what I want him to do. And fasting's not about that. And Isaiah is pretty clear about this. Another myth of fasting, though, maybe has to do more with the frequency of it. And the myth that the more we fast, the better Christians will be, the more spiritual we must be. People who fast, you know, those people who raise their hands, they must be more spiritual than I am, right? And it's not quite that equal. It's not that more fasting is automatically more, more spiritual or closer to God. If you've been reading along in Luke, and this is where you can go to Luke chapter 5 if you have your Bibles, then on Tuesday of this week you read the second half of chapter 5, and Jesus is asked by the Pharisees and the teachers of the Torah, hey Jesus, so John the Baptist's disciples are always fasting and praying, and so are the Pharisees' disciples. But yours are always just eating and drinking. What, what is that about? And Jesus' response is a, a little bit of a mini parable, but as he often responds. He says, why would groomsmen fast when they're with the bridegroom at a wedding or in preparation for a wedding? A time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. And I think Jesus is saying, you know, fasting all the time isn't the point. In Matthew 6, Jesus warns that fasting should be done in secret so that no one knows you're fasting, and yet clearly that's not what's happening with the disciples of the Pharisees or John's disciples. And we learned in Luke 18 that many Pharisees were fasting twice a week. And Jesus says that's not necessary every week. You're so busy fasting and being pious, you can't even see that this should be a time for feasting. The Son of God is with you in the flesh, and you're missing it. And so fasting isn't designed for us to simply do out of habit. It's not something we do simply because it's a spiritual discipline and we should do it. In Isaiah, the people were fasting all the time and entirely missing the point of fasting in the first place. And in fact, in verse 5, Isaiah reminds us that each fasting day was ending, I love this, in arguing and fistfights. So that's not really the fruit of a fast that you're looking for, in case you were wondering. And Instead of increasing the peace and the joy in the land, it was having the opposite effect. And then finally, and just briefly, a third myth to deal with is that we fast for health reasons. That fasting is healthy for us. I've heard this a lot, actually, from Christians who have fasted or have given up a, a certain type of food for Lent, for example, which is a kind of fast. So you can fast from desserts. You can fast from bread. I've done that before, and that was terrible. Um, <laughs> but I... I want us to know, and then people say, oh my gosh, it's so great, I've lost so much weight, I feel so much healthier. 
And that's great. Actually, our bodies are designed to fast at times. We fast every night when we go to bed, right? And when we break fast with breakfast. So it can be good for our bodies. I'm not saying it's not good, but if the reason you're fasting is for the health benefits, you might have a short-lived relationship with fasting because at times it will make you feel less healthy. At times it will make you feel more tired, more depleted, less able to exercise. And if you're experiencing those things and you're doing it for health reasons, you're probably going to stop. When in fact, some of those side effects are exactly the point of fasting, as we're going to see. So those are some myths that I think Isaiah and the Bible are kind of helping us unpack. But so what is fasting for? If it's not for the health benefits, if it's not for getting God to do something, or for increasing our spiritual stature in our community or with God, what is it for? Well, when Jesus tells the Pharisees why his disciples are fasting, or not fasting, but feasting, he goes on to give a short parable about wine. He says, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. This is in Luke 5, 2. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. And I think he's saying your old way of fasting is not fit for the kingdom that is coming. The new kingdom of God needs new wineskins, new practices, or at least a new perspective on these old practices. And the wine analogies in scripture hit home for me a lot better these, these days because my dad has become a ho- hobbyist winemaker. Many of you have heard this from me already. And Matt and I were down at my parents' house last weekend and we got to taste the new wine that they just harvested a few weeks ago and it's sitting in these big vats. It hasn't even been in a barrel yet. And the new wine is kind of fun, and it's exciting, but it's not really very good yet, right? You're like, ooh, that's really nice, but it's not, it's not yet. That's the case. It's kind of sharp. It's kind of harsh. You're having to sort of imagine what will this new wine ultimately turn into. And I think Jesus is saying no one likes new wine. You like the old stuff. No one likes change. I And you're going to have a hard time getting used to this new way of fasting. Of course, if you never bother to make any new wine, guess what? You never have old wine to drink. But side the point. I think this new way of fasting that Jesus is referring to was actually already preached and foretold by Isaiah in chapter 58. That God's heart for a fast is that it would be inseparable from our service, from our love for others. In other words, our fast is worth nothing unless it's benefiting more than just those of us fasting. It's not solely about me and God. It is about that, but it's not only about that. It's interesting to know what sparks the question about fasting for the Pharisees in Luke 5. Because right before they ask Jesus about fasting, they're actually observing Jesus and his disciples eating. It's what causes the question. But I think it's who they're eating with that is causing them so much angst. Not so much the fact that they're just having dinner. Because they're having a dinner party with tax collectors and sinners. And not only that, the dinner party's hosted by a tax collector. They're in his house. And for the Pharisees, tax collectors were sort of the worst of the worst of the Jews. And so first, their first question, before they ask about the fasting, they ask, why do you eat and drink with these kind of people? And Jesus answers them with another parable. 
this time about how it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, that he has come for the sick, essentially. And it doesn't really answer their question. And so they get at it again and start saying, but shouldn't you guys be fasting in the first place? What's with all the eating and drinking? But I think what we see is that Jesus and his disciples are choosing to spend time with people on the margins of their society, to eat and drink with them, exactly what Isaiah really is talking about as the true outcome of fasting. So fasting, in part, is about justice. It's about love for neighbors. August, St. Augustine once said to fast without giving away what one would otherwise have eaten was an expression of avarice or greed, for in effect, one is simply saving it for the following day otherwise. So for those of you who fasted this year, what did you give out of the savings from that fast? And it could be money, but you also save time when you fast. It could be prayer on behalf of our city, on behalf of our world. But a fast without an outward component, a fast without this service is no fast at all, according to Isaiah, which is a harsh word. When I was in seminary, this is sort of, this, this relates, but it's going to take a slight tangent. When I was in seminary, we were required to have a cross-cultural experience to learn about Christianity lived out in a different context. I've mentioned this before. So I took one of my classes in Egypt for three weeks, and it happened to be during Ramadan, which is a month-long fast that Muslims all around the world observe. But of course, Egypt is 90% Muslim, so it was very evident there. The fast requires that you drink no water and eat no food from sunup to sundown every day for a month. And the food part would be hard enough, but the water was really hard. We were actually coached not to bring our water bottles with us around town because we would be drinking in front of people who couldn't have a drink of water. And it's over 100 degrees outside. But people continue to work and go to school and observe this fast. And then at sunset, and this is the part I loved, literally as the sun was setting, everyone would stop what they were doing. Stores would close. Cars would pull off the side of the road. People would actually just move out into the street with a table or a blanket. They'd set food out. And then they'd sit there together, waiting. Just all this food out there, waiting. And then, as soon as the sun would dip below the horizon, uh, they would wait for the prayers to be said, and then uh, they would start eating together. And if you were a stranger visiting the city, you could join another person's table. And this would happen every night. And while there's lots of things that Ramadan doesn't necessarily get at, as far as a Christian fast we're talking about, uh, in terms of what Isaiah talks about as a true fast, what struck me was at the end of the day, each fasting day, it was resulting in people eating together, practicing hospitality, giving not only themselves, but their employees and their store clerks and everyone time to break fast and enjoy the day together. It reminds me of what we talked about with Sabbath last week, this idea that we're not only taking a Sabbath for ourselves, but we're called to Sabbath for the community and give everyone a day of rest. So I think a key question to be asking as you consider fasting is who will it benefit besides me? How do I fast in such a way that I am loving my family, my neighbors, my world, better for it? There's another component of fasting that we can't ignore, because fasting is multifaceted. There's more discussions than the one in Isaiah about it in Scripture. It's about service. It's about loving our neighbor. It's also about more deeply understanding ourselves in relationship to God. 
In the Old Testament, fasting was first and foremost really about repentance. And while Jesus and Isaiah both broadened the definition, I don't think their purpose was to abolish that one. The only required fast day for Israel, I said this before, was the annual Day of Atonement, literally to atone for sin. And to repent in the Greek means to turn around. Not just to say sorry, not just to ask forgiveness, but to literally change our behavior. And I think fasting is not a means of saying sorry. It's a means of literally changing the sinful ways that we still harbor, still have in us, and allowing God to work transformation in us, to help us change, to turn us from selfishness, to turn us from greed and anger and move us towards God's purposes and God himself. And so it's connected to how we love others, but it's a means of inward change as well. We don't have a lot of time left with my 1030 deadline, but we, do, we have one more component I want to mention, and that's that fasting is a means to loving our neighbors, it's a means to repentance, but it's also a means of worship, deepening our intimacy with God. Jesus exemplifies this beautifully when he goes into the desert to fast for 40 days. The Spirit leads him to do this, leads him into the desert, and he deprives himself of food so that he might, and, and drink so that he might deepen his trust and his reliance on God the Father. And he faces serious temptation while he fasts. And we might expect that too, actually, as we fast. But while his body is weakened, his spirit is strengthened so that at the end of those 40 days, he is ready to heal, to teach, and ultimately to go to the cross for us. In Isaiah, the outcome of a true fast is what? It's closeness with God. I want to read verses 9 through 12 again because they are full of promises about what happens when we fast in this way. It says, then, meaning when you observe my kind of fast, then you will call and the Lord will answer. Then you will cry for help and he will say, here I am. I'm right here. If you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness. Your night will be like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He'll satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. Literally, these verses are full of promises. God says, I'll be near you. You'll be strengthened in a sort of ironic turn of events. Paradoxical is probably a better word. You'll find yourselves with every need satisfied, though you are in the middle of a desert. As we fast, our bodies become more dependent on God. And we're literally saying, God, I love you more than anything else, not even my body, not even the food that sustains, not even food sustains me as much as you sustain me. Christians in the early church fasted every Friday because they wanted to identify with the suffering of Jesus on Good Friday, the day he was crucified. They desired this closeness with him to obey his command to take up their cross and follow him. In a, in a literal, physical way. And finally, I read a really simple definition of what fasting is in a book called Fasting in the New Testament. If you are fascinated by this subject, it's a great book because it goes through kind of all the different scriptures about fasting. But the author, Joseph Wimmer, defines Christian fasting as a sign of our love that involves a painful renunciation of a legitimate joy. A sign of our love that involves a painful renunciation of a legitimate joy. 
We fast as a sign of our love for our Savior, and our love for the people he came to heal and save. We fast as a sign. And through our true fasting, I think God reveals himself as our sustainer, as our Savior, as our healer. And then as we experience him as those things, we become conduits for those things in our communities, for healing, for sustenance, for salvation from oppression in his name. And that's why we'll close today with a little bit of service for others. And I'll tell you, friends, this study has convicted me in ways few sermons actually have. I don't fast. I hate going without food. I get cranky really quickly. Hangry, like it's a common word in our household. And my body cries out when I miss lunch, let alone a whole day of going without food. But I'm convicted today that this act of surrender of a legitimate joy is important to my Christian growth, my growth in Christ, and my growth in being able to serve the community around me. So I'm going to start really simply with the simple act of fasting at lunch today. Uh, We're going to be doing this service project as we end today. We're going to be spending some time leading up to the lunch hour, right? Prepping clothes and food for others. Normally, I provide fruit and bagels on serve Sundays, and I didn't today, thinking maybe we can think about how we can spend some time focused on others. You're invited to do that or to pick a different meal, but start maybe just one and see what comes of it. And let's consider what role fasting, be it from food or maybe food isn't it. Maybe it's not a legitimate joy for you. Maybe there's something else, buying clothes, internet, I don't know. Fast from something in your life and then see what role that has in your life with God and your life as God's hands and feet in our world. Let's pray and I'll invite the musicians back up. God, thank you. Thank you for your grace for us, God, as we are still learning what it means to be Christ's body. God, as we think about this idea of fasting, I pray that you would help us to find the right thing, what that next step is in this practice. And then, Lord, I pray that you would meet us in that faithfulness, step of faithfulness. God, as you are faithful, and show us, God, how we can love your world better for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.